0: Many Moons Go, a podcast series by DU History. My name is Terence and I'm the secretary of DU History's 88th session. Our, for our final episode of the academic year, we are delighted to have Dr. Ida Mill from Carlow College. Dr. Mill is a lecturer in European history and she has a BA and an MA in Modern History from the National University of Ireland in Maynooth, after which she received a PhD from Trinity College Dublin in 2005. Where the subject was the 1918 to 1919 influenza pandemic in Ireland, from a Leinster perspective. Since then, Dr. Millen has become the vice chair of the Oral History Network of Ireland and a member of the Royal Irish Academy's Historical Sciences Community. In addition, Dr. Millen has written extensively for both the Irish Times and the Irish Independent, where she most notably wrote a prophetic warning that there would be significant numbers in Ireland who were hesitant to take vaccines. Dr. Milne has expanded on her PhD thesis and has created a, and published a book called Stacking the Coffins, which in more detail explains how the entirety of the country struggled with both a revolutionary period and a pandemic, and all of which happened in the aftermath of the devastating First World War. We really enjoyed talking with Dr. Milne, and We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did.
1: Thank you very much Terence for that uh, really nice introduction. Um, And I'm just going to open up my video um, slideshow, if you don't mind, Um, and try and move the screen out of the way so I can see it. So I've been working really, I suppose, uh, as Terence was telling you there, I um, started working on the Spanish flu, which was really a totally unresearched subject. Hard to imagine. It wasn't known when you spoke to people about it. They didn't know what it was. Uh, People, even if their own family died from it, often didn't know that they had died in this great big pandemic, the biggest killing, biggest of three um, global pandemics on record. One was the plagues of Justinian in the 500s, uh, and, and another was the Black Death in the Middle Ages. Uh, both of those would have killed about one third of Europe's population. And then the Spanish flu, which killed upwards of 50 million people globally, but which at the time wasn't really told as a great story. And it's only since Alfred Crosby, um, who gave us the idea of the Colombian exchange, but also started researching the great flu in the American context in the 1970s. And we might talk about that afterwards in questions. The reasons why it was forgotten are, are kind of ignored by history, because I think it's really relevant to history students. Um, but I began doing it when I was looking at doing an MA in, in Maynooth, um, looking for a topic to research. And I kind of shyly said to um you know being then a very insecure student but of 40 years of age or whatever um said to you know the head of um the course you know would this be a suitable topic nothing's ever been done on it and it was Ray Gillespie and he said are there the sources and I said well the newspapers are there because I'd worked in a newspaper office and I knew that there was I worked in independent newspapers for 20 years before I went back into study history again uh and I knew that, that that these the newspapers had a lot of detail about it, so he said, "Go ahead," and on such a flimby, flimsy premise has been based um, the past sixteen years of work. Even up as as close as four years ago, uh, I was told I should really expand my research field, and it really took a pandemic to teach the people who said things like that quite how silly what they what they said was. Um, are unknowing, I shouldn't say silly, it's perhaps the wrong word. Um, before we look at the history of it itself, I wonder, um, uh, is it useful to look, does the 1918-19 flu and that should be the 2020 COVID-19 uh, crisis compare, are the two crises comparable? Um I'm just going to move this across my screen. Sorry, something there. There are many echoes. It was a different illness, but it did spread in very similar ways through, you know, um, coughs and sneezes and things like that. Uh, the global spread was uh, is, is, is incredibly uh, remarkable. And I think that's partly because uh, both diseases, you could be up and about. And uh, it could be three or four days before you might be actually floored by it or a little bit longer in in the case of COVID, about eight or 10 days um, for many people before they become really ill uh, with it. So that meant you could be spreading it. And it also had quite a similar mortality rate uh, early last year before we started having things like lockdown and before medicine got better tabs on it. At that stage, it was killing about um, two out of every hundred people, which is about the same as Spanish flu. In um, uh, many countries, um, apart from somewhere like the Inuit in Alaska, where it might kill half a village. Um, so are many echoes, um, the social impact, the medical puzzle, just like now, medicine worked out of its skin trying to figure out what the hell was going on here and how can we p- keep patients alive. The way it overwhelmed health systems. And um, then, too, there was a long 1918 flu. Um, some people I've interviewed, um, including R.B. McDowell, the famous Trinity Junior Dean. I don't know whether you've ever heard of him or not. Um, he was 97 when I interviewed him. So even by my standards, he was old. Um, uh, but quite a character in Trinity. You should Google him and listen to him. He's very entertaining historian, too, of course. Um, um, but he had to make a decision because he had long term weakness of health, having caught it at five years of age. When he came to the time when he was choosing his career at 17 or 18, he felt that he couldn't um, choose going into law, which would have been the family profession. The army was definitely out. So he chose academia. And I don't think that's something that um, if you had delicate health now, you'd go into it because it's only for not for the faint hearted. And. Um, It's not over yet, so we don't know whether the scale of death, illness and ongoing damage to human bodies uh, will compare, but it's unlikely or less possible now than it was a year ago. Uh, But at the same time, the US figures from COVID are scarily close to the 1918-1919 figure. Um, They lost 670,000 in 1918-1919. They have already lost 560,000 now. Of course, their population is much bigger now than it was in 1918 I'm part of a, an international network of uh, historians, historical demographers, science writers, sociologists, geographers who have been working on Spanish flu, um, some of them for far longer than I have. Um, but we've been trying to raise awareness with MERS and SARS and other threats, um, as Terence said, that that this, something like this, it wasn't a matter of whether it would happen, but when. And now even um, Dr. Mike Ryan of the WHO, the wonderful Dr. Mike Ryan, I've had the honor to share a panel with him, I think three times now, uh, and I keep threatening him with my oral history recorder. Um, He says that this will happen again. It could be even worse the next time. So we don't know yet what the mutations are going to do this. Um, but we've been trying to raise awareness of it. And in many ways, we're, we're quite fortunate that the centenary in 2018 gave us the opportunity uh, to at least warn medicine. And medicine were very keen to listen about it, uh, whereas the politicians weren't. And I think that's patently obvious now. And I do hope that it means that the study of health history will um, get a raised profile. And be given much more, you know, even a dedicated lecture within most universities would be nice to see. Um, uh, Because it's needed. Understanding these things helps us to understand an awful lot about society. Um, Good, that's gone down to the bottom now. I was... It was called Spanish flu because Spain wasn't at war, uh, so it wasn't affected by wartime censorship. Now, wartime censorship was quite limited in some countries, like, for example, Ireland. Um, but by the time it infected Alfonso Thirteenth, this guy on the right hand side here, a 31 year old Spanish king, it had already weakened the German, the French, the US and the British armies. And. Um, neither the Allies nor the Central Powers wanted the others to know where it was infecting. So in many countries, uh, censorship prevented news of it reaching the newspapers. Uh, And and indeed it's it's understood now that it had an impact on the outcome of the war, that just when the Germans um, had launched their spring offensive, uh, they were also weakened by uh, the flu. And that that indeed may have changed uh, or at least affected the outcome of the war. And if you're interested in reading more about that, Howard Phillips, who is probably the senior uh, flu historian in the world, he's from South Africa, he's written a great piece on it on the 1914-1918 uh, encyclopedia uh, online of World War One. The locus of origin is still much debated, despite authoritative claims uh, that it began in Fort Riley, Kansas in spring 1918. And I know by many now, by many of you will realise that historians like not to make authoritative claims. It's in our nature because we know from our training that as soon as we do make an authoritative claim, we'll find Conflicting evidence that will shoot us down and prove us totally wrong. So we we would, as a group, um, the international group of R- researchers, we're looking at incidents of flu in 1917, 1916 that have similar features to Spanish flu. But it's quite clear that war conditions helped it spread, and and that included here in Dublin, um, because Dublin was a little bit removed from the closer arenas of war. But close enough still, you get things like Canadian soldiers um, and um, other soldiers coming here. when they have a week off from the war because you'd go forward for maybe 10 days at a time then you would come back for some rest and when they did that they might come to somewhere like dublin and do a lot of touring around town and if they had spanish flu they often spread it around town we know a few cases of that uh, before they had to get into bed and and, and couldn't stick it out of bed anymore and um, in terms of global statistics, originally in the 1920s, Edwin Oakes Jordan, the American epidemiologist, was the first one to give a, 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 an estimate. He estimated 20 million out of a global population of 2 billion died from it. Uh, the WHO and now says 40 to 50 million died. But given that there's now a robust estimate from India, 20 million, that seems quite preposterous. And there's a very enterprising uh, young, I think, Fourth year Oxford student, Anne Hampton Gaddy, who is actually working on doing a really good re estimate of um, the figures uh, that were done in 2003, I think, by uh, Niall Johnson, um, which gave this 40 to 50 million estimate. Uh, the real figure is never going to be known because death certification in generally is infancy. In many countries, it was patchy. Uh, Certification was introduced in Ireland since the 1860s, and like many other countries, we were using what we use today, the ICD system, International Classification of Death, system of death by disease, which was then the 1911 version. It's revised about every 10 years. And this enabled international counting to be done on a more parallel basis, you know, because one person's bronchitis might be another person's flu or pneumonia. Quite hard to do in 1918. Um, the Hampton, I was just chatting to him this morning and I was saying, have you come across anything for Russia? Because, of course, Russia was in revolution. So it was really difficult to estimate that. And he said, no, he said, but it's far bigger than the estimate that Johnson and Mueller gave, which I think was about 450,000. He said, if you take two percent of the Russian population, it's 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 going to be more like millions. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what new estimate he comes at. Um, we did have three more pandemics of influenza since then, uh, one in 1957, uh, the other in 1968. They both killed about between one and two million each. And then there was the big scare in 2009 uh, when um, there was a major flu outbreak in Mexico City and it seemed to be infecting um a lot of young people, which was the really scary thing about the 1918 flu. And therefore there was an awful lot of excitement about that in the newspapers and a global mass vaccination campaign, which probably limited the deaths from that. I think it was about um, six or seven hundred thousand in the end. So it wasn't as big as it is either of those. Um, But there's no not not really good. Um, perhaps good statistics on it. But the one thing about that I was always afraid of was that it would, uh, as Terence alluded to, that it might scare people off um, or or, uh, deter them from getting vaccinated again because uh, there was quite a big side effect of one of the vaccinations in that in young people, some young people had caused narcolepsy, which some of them are still suffering from today. And um, so I was just afraid, and many of us were afraid that that would deter people getting vaccinated from something like what we have at the moment. In terms of Irish statistics, over two years, the Registrar General lists twenty thousand and fifty-seven certified flu deaths, and they're concentrated into three waves. I've added in about three thousand excess pneumonia deaths, uh, so that's about twenty-three thousand in my view. And from that, with Anthony Kinsler we ran a big program uh, trying to remember what it was now uh, that took 24 hours in a computer to do it we put in various compilations and um, about 800,000 caught the flu we reckon somewhere 800, 900,000, more than one fifth of the population. Um, if the case fatality rate was two point five percent, population at the time was four million on the whole island. Uh, there are evidence to suggest there is evidence to suggest many deaths were uncertified. People, doctors were working so hard to keep the living going that they couldn't do the paperwork for the dead as well. Um, Leinster and Ulster were most severely affected. Um, Uh, partly because they're a seaport, partly because they're more populated. Uh, Ulster, of course, there's a lot of factories as well spread through there. Uh, Kildare had the Caius County death rate uh, in Ireland. Uh, Dublin and Donegal were really badly affected in all three waves for various local reasons, mainly to do with the fact uh, Loch Swilly had the Navy based in Donegal at the time and uh, to protect sheltering from convoys. Uh, sorry, sheltering from uh, U-boats, the German U-boats, which were attacking um, all sorts of shipping in the Irish Sea. And Dublin, of course, then had just so much traffic continuously going through it. Um, so Dublin's population at the time in, 19, in, in 1911 at the last census was 477,000. And um, it caught, it, the Registrar-General lists... Um, Uh, 769 1769 dying from it in 1918 and 1099 in 1918 and um, Anthony and I estimated that about one quarter of the Dublin population caught the flu so I've read part of my thing was uh, to my PhD was before the newspapers went online in the wonderful Irish news archive and um I read all the microfilm um, for every newspaper at Leinster and many other newspapers around the country on hard film in the the National Library. It was a really tough task. Um, And a lot of it I had to read sideways (laughs) as well. Um, So um, they have a very similar pattern when you read them. As it goes through an area, through villages, towns, and city, suburbs, entire areas will go quiet. In Dublin, Hoth uh, was then a major shipping uh, port. Passenger ferries went in and out of it. Uh, Kingstown, of course, Dunleary also. Uh, They were um, really badly affected uh, early on, um, in common with other port towns along the East Coast, you know, like Dundalk and, of course, Belfast. Um, Commerce was still, shops struggled to stay open. There's loads of stories in all the newspapers of shop workers of all types dying. Uh, schools libraries and other public buildings were closed matches were and concerts uh were postponed terence and i were just tracing our wexford connections earlier and um the all ireland finals both football and hurling were the senior ones were uh, played in january and february uh wexford i really shouldn't tell this in public but um uh, i'm from wexford and wexford won their four in a row and um uh it has to be said that it was partly because so many of the teams they met along the way were weakened by the flu and when they met Tipperary in the final their leading point scorer uh, was weakened by the flu but this is not something that's very popular when I say it in Wexford Uh, I mean they'd won three already so they were a good team anyway Uh, Dublin streets were sprayed with disinfectant same in many other towns and Escorthy for example it happened as well. Uh, Cinemas uh, really worked hard to convince the authorities to leave them to say oh stay open, uh partly because um they might have gone bust otherwise and partly um because they were a really important source of news because those news newsreels were telling the stories of the war at the time. And so they persuaded the authorities that if they um closed between 20 15 or 20 minutes between um sittings, uh that they'd spray um with a thing called a deodar which is kind of a pub. Pump and they spray disinfectant around around, uh, the buildings. And they also open the windows to let in fresh air. Uh, if you look through the newspapers and the death records, which, of course, are online in irishgenealogy.ie, they're full of stories of multiple deaths in families. Um, I have them from all over the country, um, some from Dublin, some from Wexford, some from Donegal Cork, et cetera. Um, and one eyewitness um, told me um, that when she was a very small girl, she remembered um, being in the family hardware shop Gogurty's and Nace and that um, one of the houses across the road for them was uh, what we call a two-up, two-down house and that they couldn't bring the bodies down the stairs uh, because it was too hard because the stairs were so narrow and um, they brought them out the top windows and she said she saw 10 bodies coming out one of those top windows. Um, So there were stories in the newspapers, for example, of um, a house in Corporation Street In Dublin, where the neighbours broke in, not having seen the family about for a day. And there was only one bed in the room, and there were four people dead in it. Uh, You know, a a husband and a wife, their child, and the sister of of one of them as well. Um, So, quite different, I I think, uh, compared to what we have now, thankfully, uh, even though there have been more than one um, people in some families that have died. And I'm very sorry if anybody listening has. had that horrible experience um, this is um the independent from the 26th of october 1918 the newspapers were tiny at the time because there was an issue with production of the newsprint the paper for, for the newspapers um there's usually only about six pages um and typically they would lead with war news, but you'd know when the flu was up in an area uh, because it would push um, the, the war, you know, what had happened at, in, in different battles, et cetera, off the front page or else at least down the news agenda. So this was a very typical kind of story, a virulent ep- epidemic, the worst for several generations. Uh, the previous epidemic, of influenza or pandemic had been in the 1890s wasn't nearly as bad as this one uh, scarcity of doctors because of course many doctors were away at the war demand for the release of intern men and that was because some of those doctors um some doctors uh had been um interned because of their um, involvement in the German plot, uh, which was a trumped up charge against um, people who were active in the anti-conscription campaign at the time. And then church prayers ordered. Um, at one stage, um, it was so serious um, that the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, um, Willie Walsh, very socially aware man, uh, said that people shouldn't... Um, abstain for the 1st of November, the Feast of All Saints. um, And that if there was a real risk of infection, they shouldn't bring the corpse into a church for the funeral. Um, So this is some headlines from the Evening Herald um, throughout the, the influenza period. So you just get the scourge, the danger of anxiety. You get that all the time, like the panic. Uh, when is this going to end? Because it kept coming back in wave after wave, and um, you know they kept saying the newspapers would say, when will will this ever go away? Even after three waves, will we have another one? And again, this is something we really understand now too, you know the kind of frustration and and um, fear combined. Uh, this is a paper from the Irish Times, just a few headlines from the, or a few stories from the Irish Times, 31st of October, which is at the peak of the second wave in Dublin. So there's no cause for panic. And again, you see this, and I think we've seen this now too, that um, you often see both the journalists and the doctors who are talking about it and are saying, um, now, there's no need to panic, even though it seems really bad at the moment. And what you know internally they're doing is panicking like heck. You know, it's just like you um, see a kind of a controlled response from our, you know, um, from Neffet and the various news briefings we get at the moment. So while a healthy spirit of optimism prevails amongst the citizens generally, that Dublin has passed... Through the worst phase of the influenza epidemic, there is as yet no tangible evidence of the wished for decline. A tour of any part of the city and a few questions directed to medical practitioners elicit the information that the number of victims continues exceptionally high. And then they go on to say that that yet the headline is no cause for panic, you know, and they're worried hell. Um, One of the big heroes who came out of this epidemic, the Tony Holohans or whatever, was Sir Charles Cameron. I'll talk about him in a minute, but he was the Dublin chief medical officer of health uh, and became really beloved of journalists because he was really good at giving really clear, simple communication. Uh, so you think there, the effects in the legal circles over the right-hand side, they also discuss um, how the shipping offices at the docks are knocked out and then here this one I love is a germicidal campaign of course the language of war Uh, disinfection and purification are the watchwords just now with housekeepers and managers of all sorts of businesses at the time the deadly microorganism has given the influence its present reign of terror so they're talking there about how various buildings and private houses were being disinfected and on the left hand side then they're talking about just how busy the hospitals are and that there are 1,500 people uh, currently uh, seriously ill in hospitals with it in Dublin. And even in a small town like New Ross that week, uh, there was 1,000 people under medical care. Uh, In Dundalk, there was 2,000. So that's the kind of level of infection that uh, people like me uh, were worried would happen without lockdown. And it would have been far more serious because it spreads in such a similar and very quick way, and particularly the new variant that's going around at the moment. Um, There are a lot of stories um, that were told to me personally and uh, in the newspapers and in the coroner's records of people becoming quite disoriented by the fever from the flu. Uh, The coroner's reports talk about people who stumble, die when they stumble under tramways or in front of carriage wheels. And then there's a story in the Evening Herald on uh, drowning in Herbert Park and uh, the pond and other buildings in herbert park had been built for the great exhibition uh, which was about a decade earlier and the pond is really shallow so this poor man um, got up out of his sickbed and went over was crossing the park um, to go and get medicine from the pharmacy for himself and his wife and keeled over the pond and drowned and I mean, if he'd even rolled over, he would have survived. Um, but he just fell face down into the pond, and, and 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 that was that. It's really shallow, you know, it's it's less than a foot deep. Um, two maps I'm going to show 1918, 1919. They give the rates of death by county per thousand head of population, uh, with the more orange bit being the the, the higher numbers. So you can see here, um, uh, the first wave is really from around Donegal, down as far as, as Dublin, uh, infecting a lot around Belfast. And the first news reports really come from Belfast, where they talk about the tram workers being sick. Uh, the second wave, then it moved downwards again from uh, along this, this same area here again, but all the way down into uh, the rest of Leinster. Kildare becomes very bad. Wexford becomes very bad. Wicklow as well at that stage. And beginning to spread across over into Kilkenny, etc. And then in 1919, in the third wave, it broadly spreads um, westward. Donegal, again, very badly affected, but places like Mayo and the southwest are badly affected. Uh, Longford looks high there, but I think it was about 10 new deaths because Longford's population is so small. It it, it makes it uh, it's a bit of an an anomaly there. County Clare had very few deaths in, in either year. And um, again, you're trying to figure out the reasons for that. And I thought it might be something to do with the West Clare Railway. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Percy French song. Are you right there, Michael, which talks about the West Clare Railway always breaking down. We don't know whether the old engine will hold together. It's a funny song, well worth looking up. But more recently, I found out that there was a lot of military suppression in um, uh, Clare at the time. And so the roads were actually physically broken up. And um, I know this because um, uh, a family relative um, died um, up here uh, of my in-laws, died in Sligo. And uh, the mother of a small girl who was born prematurely because of the flu. And she was taken down, the little girl, uh, only two pounds weight, was taken down in a shoebox uh lined with cotton wool to keep her warm all the way down to ennis uh, where her uncle um walked in from Cooraclare and west clare to ennis to pick her up and he had to walk even though he owned a pony and trap because the roads were cut up uh to pick her up and he organized because i don't know if you know much about the uh, one of the issues with small babies um Is maintaining their heat because they've no body fat to maintain heat. And so he had arranged with houses along the way um, to light a fire uh, so that she could recover her heat before he brought her on to the next house. And that way she survived until she was in her 80s. She was a publican and often told the story. Um, This. here is the three waves of Spanish flu and pneumonia deaths in Dublin between January 1918 and June 1919. So you see the first one here on the left is the first wave, which is in uh, May, June, uh, early July 1918. The second one is October uh, to December um, 1918. And then the third one is in the spring. It's not as bad in Dublin as, as the second wave was. And. Um, Who are most vulnerable to catching the disease and dying for it? Well, it goes by age, occupation of the family, um, income earner and class, including the conditions of poverty. These are the principal factors which contributed to infection and to death. Um, And here you see it's quite different to COVID. Uh, The older people seem to have some immunity from an earlier disease. This is a speculation that goes. But the people it killed were actually close to your age um the um 20 to 35 year olds were most badly hit and people would talk constantly say constantly oh that's because they might have been soldiers in the war well no a lot of sports people were killed Um, I had a a Louth County footballer, a Wicklow County footballer, a Clare County footballer uh, were all killed by it. Uh, There was a Kildare champion champion hammer trower was killed by it. A couple of Wexford's handballers were killed by it. And it's been suggested to me it was because this kind of flu caused a thing called a cytokine storm, which happens now too, uh, which is basically an overreaction of a very strong immune system. Uh, That causes organ failure. Uh, The other group that was really badly hit by it were the under fives, who were then a very vulnerable sector of society and uh, 20,000 of the deaths on the island, uh, 20% of the deaths on the island each year uh, were children under five and. you know, things like poverty affected that number, uh, but also um, infectious diseases like measles, pneumonias, bronchitis, uh, a lot of things that we have vaccinations against now uh, cause that level of death. Um, This is death in Dublin by social class and occupation in June 1918 to June 1919. And what's really interesting about flu, it's often discussed as being a class neutral disease. Um, and certainly you can see here uh, the Registrar General used four different classes to categorise uh, socioeconomic um classes to categorize death and he used the the, the the what you see in the bottom is the first class which is um you know very well off people like you know um possibly judges but senior people in the army senior people in banks landlords people like that uh, the gray one there is the middle classes uh, the blue one uh, the paler blue one is art Workers, so like um, craftspeople and plumbers and things like that, and petty shopkeepers. And then the darker blue one um, is the lower class, the, the the working class, which was very broadly defined then the biggest class by a long shot. Um, but also uh, it included people like the police um shop workers rather than the shopkeepers, um, as well as what we would today call the the, the laboring um uh, the working class, uh, which would be people maybe who would be paid to work by the hour or the day. And that uh they were particularly vulnerable during the flu because you know, while the advice was if you got it, you should go to bed and stay there. Um uh, for those kind of people, they didn't have savings. There was no COVID dole, which is the great benefit that we have today. And um, if their family was starving, they hadn't much choice other than to go out to work, um, even if they were ill. Um, so uh, what's really interesting, that there is an anomaly here in those statistics. I think they should go up a little bit more. That's the first wave there. Um, the second wave here, uh, Frank... Um, Ludlow from the department, you'll know him, pointed out to me, we were Georgina Larragui, myself, Frank Ludlow, um, Kieran O'Neill uh, and David Dixon and Conor Dodd of Glasnevin Cemetery. We did an exhibition on the flu, which you'll find online. I have a link to it at the end. There's a Sway online under Georgina Larragui's, um Twitter account if you, if you follow her. Um, But what Frank pointed out to me when he saw this, he got really excited and he said, look, how did you see there with the. um, uh, Oh, sorry, I've gone on um, the the first class there. He says there's an inversion. They've copped on something's going on and they're not going out. And sure enough, the stories in in the Irish Times, uh, you know, which would be the elite paper correlate with that. A grocer in Westmoreland Street said the better class of people are not going out to get their messages just now. Uh, Which is fine, except what happened to the poor devil who actually did go out to get their messages. So they were taking preventive measures by staying at home. Uh, This is R.B. um, MacDowell, the junior dean. Uh, He caught the flu in Belfast as a small boy. He wasn't supposed to live through the night. And I mentioned that it had an impact on on his choice of career. Um, This picture was taken for, I think, the Trinity Times in August, in the height of summer. And the one question I never asked him, oral historians are always full of regret about the stork question they didn't ask, the rabbit hole that didn't go down. And I never said to him, did this leave you with a lifelong paranoia about your health or a strong concern about his health? And uh, David Dixon had actually said to me, um, when you were interviewing, whatever you do, don't ask him about how he is. And, you know, you, you meet a polite old man and what you do, you stick out your say, how do you do? And he said, well, they tell me I'm not too bad for a man of my age and proceeded. I think he was 97 then uh, to tell me his blood pressure. Top reading and bottom reading. So (laughs) uh, I think, you know, it's quite clear from even the clothes he wore, how warm he was. I mean, he was there in an August wearing a a scarf, a woolly coat, a woolly jumper, a fleecy shirt. And I'm not going to investigate whether he was wearing a string vest or not. But anyway, um, he told me that when he came to Trinity, he asked questions because he was very curious about the flu. Uh, about what had happened. And he said he was told um, that one of his colleagues had seen um, stretchers, multiple stretchers in Botany Bay, um, just lined up there waiting to be, with students who were really ill and being carted off to hospital. Uh, now, when I um, looked through the college archives and the muniments, I could find hardly nothing on the flu. And I've like really discovered since that it's often not mentioned by name you have to go in and kind of look and there's a kind of almost like a secret language that it's you know this dread disease or something like that it'll be called but it won't say the spanish flu when you look through them and more recently some archivists in different archives around the country have come to me and said oh you remember you asked 10 years ago well now i've found something because now there's more awareness there of it uh they know better how to look and see Um, This is heliotrope cyanosis. It was regarded as an almost certain sign um, that death was near. It happened when the alveoli, the tiny sacs in the lungs filled with um, all sorts of fluids, bodily fluids like albumin and and, and blood and things. And they were unable to do their work oxygenating the blood. And when doctor and family alike saw this, they knew that the end was really near. And very few patients with this kind of symptom ever recovered. But it's one of the kind of unique features of, of, of Spanish flu. Uh, there was no grand central plan for the local government board for Ireland based in the Custom House, which managed the poor law dispensary system, which then covered about 70% of the Irish population. The rest would be dependent on paying, you know, private health care. It was completely overwhelmed. Um, the South Dublin Union, which is now St. James's, for example, hired all the nurses they could. They cleared most of the non-flu patients out of the infirmary into the workhouse. They hired somebody to take bodies to the morgue. And that's where the title of my book, Stacking the Coffins, actually came from, uh, because somebody, um, he's a GP now, um, but his family had been timber merchants for Fannigan's, the undertakers. and. Um, his father had told them that a lot of their money had actually been made um, during the Spanish flu uh, because they'd made so many coffins and that um, the coffins were stacked. He said 18 to 20 high in the morgue and in, in, in what's now St. James's. Um, they had pharmacies worked around the clock to make medicines They made them in huge big cough bottles called jerry bombs um some another guy told me that um his family had a pharmacy at leonard's corner and uh, that they worked late into the night and then would distribute um the prescriptions with the help of the army around the city and you know the british army is such a bad press but here they were actually helping with um flu victims at the time um, hospitals were completely overwhelmed with numbers, as the Adelaide's uh, records show. Hospital records from the time of a lot of survival issues. So, if you ever see any, any, um, I found some actually in a uh, hotel in, in Lucan one time. I found the Matter Hospital records there and was able to save them. And the same thing with um, the Cork Fever Hospital records. I found some of them as well. Um, uh, they were actually in good hands, but they needed to be archived. Properly, uh, So DW McNamara is one of the few doctor's accounts I have of it. So if you have any, you come across any, I'm still looking for them. Um, he writes of work, uh, working in the matter as a junior house doctor, he wrote in the 1950s, and of the hospital turning over most of the wards there to treat flu patients uh, and he said this was replicated in other hospitals and the workhouses and he spoke about how scary it was for doctors. Doctors were really confident in their medicine at the time a lot like now uh, because bacteriological methods which had been developing from the 1890s onwards with Koch and Pfeiffer etc um, had seemed to be fighting winning the fight against uh, infectious disease which killed so many people at the time. And suddenly their confidence in this wonder science is damaged. Because, of course, flu was a virus and they wouldn't know that until the 1930s. Uh, but he said that the only comfort the doctors in the matter had was that was a constant plod past the windows of horse-drawn horses carrying the dead from ho- to hospitals on their, on their way to Glasnevin. And that at least they were n- no different. But, but they all say really that good me- nursing was, was the most effective medicine. Um, and there was an emergency meeting at the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland in November 1918 where they pooled these suggestions. They said that something for sleeplessness, people's headaches were so bad they couldn't sleep. They'd give a preparation of opium. Medicines were rather more exciting at that time. Um, for headache, they gave aspirin. Interestingly, aspirin was often made by Bayer, the German company. And in America in particular, um, it was thought that uh, the Bayer had infected the aspirin boxes. A uh, rumor went around um, with, with the flu. Uh, doctors had a great belief then in keeping your bowels open so that was one of the first medicines they gave was calomel which is mercurous chloride not really the kind of medicine we give now and alcohol was used in copious quantities because of course the fumes of hot whiskey or whatever um one of my interviews had his first taste of hot whiskey at, at the age of five and it was a taste that continued with him really all his life um uh you know it it alleviated the symptoms and as um uh, McNamara said at least it sent some of the patients on a merry dance to the hereafter but it did nothing to save them uh, vaccines did exist, they were made from several different types of bacteria uh, doctors weren't convinced that they that they did anything but some of the scientists I've spoken to, uh, Dr. Kim uh, Rogers, Roberts and Trinity uh, for example say they might have prevented secondary pneumonias uh, Charles Cameron, Dublin Medical Office of Health, this guy here, he was 88 at the time of the flu, he'd been working to improve the health of Dubliners for 50 years. Um, his dream was that each family should have their own toilet and a tap. And his advice was constantly sought by journalists. And that was always that people should go stick away from crowds and go to bed and stay there until well better. And that good nursing with plenty of liquids offered the best chance of survival. Um, So he was um, a very clear communicator. That's something I've been writing a lot about about in the last year, the importance of clear communication. Um, There's a whole story that goes along with nationalism, propaganda, and the flu. But just to mention this, quickly here uh, kathleen lynn uh, was a medical doctor and sinn fein activist she dodged arrest during that german plot that i mentioned the anti-conscription uh campaigners roundup in may 1918 and um she was allowed off the run in return for working with flu victims so she vaccinated people around the city and and some of the areas in the city will tell you like, in the east wall that she saved many lives doing that whether she did or not i Suppose is open to sepul- speculation. And she also set up a temporary nursing home for flu ill at Charlemont Street, uh, there as well. Many Irish children uh lost one or both parents, including my own relations, uh, my great-grandfather's um. Um, cousin and his wife in uh, North Wexford and when they both died they were living in a rented farmhouse Uh, their children George and Lizzie Millen were 13 and 14 years of age they were separated and and, and this was often traditional at the time you'd be separated not sent in one but George went to a family in Dublin and Lizzie uh, went to family in Enniscorthy and they never really spent a night in the same house again and this thing of families being split up is a theme I've found over and over again and of losing houses because often there were extreme financial uh, difficulties particularly if the breadwinner died and in those days often the family home went with the job if you were something like a teacher or a prison warder as as well and then several people lost health for many years just want to talk maybe uh, two or three minutes about a couple of the people um, to give you a picture of the typical kind of things that happened um, this is Catherine Moran-Heatley um, her husband Charles we mentioned uh, was it Shane you were saying that um, you had family who died at the Battle of the Somme and um, Uh, Her husband Charles died at the Battle of Somme. It was blown to bits, there was no body to be found, but he is commemorated on the Tiepfel Memorial. Um, But at least they knew where he died and what he died from. Um, She was left to raise their three infant sons. She died from influenza pneumonia, but they didn't know. They didn't know for years and years until uh, her grandson uh, Fred came to me and uh, he did his own research and I did some as well. And he said, like his father had had gone to his own grave, not knowing where his mother's body was or what she died from. And it turns out that her body all that time had been buried in Glasnevin, only about 10 graves away from the rest of the family plot. So they'd passed by it many times and never known. And he says it gives a certain comfort to them to know that story. And a lot of what I do as a historian, I also work on infectious diseases of childhood now, um, is to try and give back something of the story to set them in their context. And it somehow seems to give comfort to families when they can do that. Um, uh, maybe I will go on to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, finish on this one, then. Um, Stella larkin um, with another somebody I've drawn on for a lot of oral history, Um, I've done about 50 oral history interviews on the flu with survivors of their family. She's James Larkin, the trade unionist's granddaughter. And she told me of her mother's family, the Moors, who came from a one room tenement, in 34 Margaret Street, which is right across from the spire. Her mother was Anna Moore, the third of 10 children and the only one of those 10 children who survived over the age of five. The only one. And they died of so many of the conditions, diseases of conditions of poverty that were typical of the time. Uh, I've found most of them now in the in civil registration and in the Glasnevin cemetery uh, records. They die of things like uh, diarrhoea, um, measles, and in November 1918, her, uh, Stella's four-year-old aunt, Mary Moore, um, died from flu at the height of the second wave. Um, she was supposed to be have the gift of the sight, and she said um, to her mother "Mummy, can you put me into my best dress I feel something important is about to happen. And she did. And with that, she climbed into a bed that would have been very similar to the one in the room you see here, which is a one room tenement. But there's actually five children in that picture, Um, typical of what they lived in with um, an open fire, but no running water, no, no, um, no lavatory or anything like that. Um, And she 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 climbed into the family bed and died from the flu. Um, our modern eyes really can't begin to imagine how hard it was uh, to nurse flu sufferers in, in these kind of conditions. And if you look, just to finish on this, then um, this is very typical. If you look at IrishGenealogy.ie, you can look up the um, certification for for, for these uh, people, people who died at the time, well, at any time really. Um, but Little Mary Moore is the one just here. Uh, she's a spinster, she's four years old she's child of a So again that picture uh, the class, fourth class her death is down to bronchitis so we don't even know if it's counted in the official records of those 23,000 and then it's Um, it's listed by B Fitzpatrick who couldn't actually write so it's uh, across her mark who was present at at her death and she died in um, the 14th of November but the rest of them on that page it's really a picture of how poignant it was at the time. Here is little Michael Fogarty, a bachelor, six years of age died from bronchopneumonia and meningitis, probably flu as well child of a clerk. This little boy Joseph Goggins, a bachelor, three years old child of a soldier, bronchopneumonia heart failure same thing again uh anna mahan um uh, 31 years of age wife of a pork butcher dies of influenza um and then this one here is mary um Habern, i think it is 15 year old child daughter of a labor and f- influenza again um so i had a couple more the big question for now um it was an influenza A H1N1 virus that was new to the human population. It spread over two to three years to most parts of the world, so it no longer had pandemic capabilities. And this is, I suppose, what was hoped would happen with covid we don't know yet whether it will or not. Uh, it continued to circulate until the 1958 pandemic when it was replaced by the strain that caused that and then escaped from a secure facility, it's understood in the 1970s, and was re- again circulated until it was replaced by another a, uh, H1N1, the 2009 variety. And that's just my book, which is in TCD library and on the online system as well in eBooks. Uh, but also just to point there to TCD, Glass, Nevin Trust Exhibition Sway, um, which you'll find online and gives a lot of other stories. Uh, so thank you all for listening. And um, I hope I haven't gone on too long.
2: <laughs> thank you so, so much to Dr. Milne for what was truly a fascinating talk. I think it was a really great place for us to finish up with the last episode of Many Moons Ago on talking about a pandemic because that's what really brought us here to the creation of this podcast. And I just want to take this opportunity for the very last episode of the year to say thank you so much to all of our listeners and our society members for coming with us along this journey because it's truly been an absolute pleasure. We've had so much fun putting it together and learning all these different stories about these figures, having such great conversations with such fantastic guest speakers. Thank you to all of our guest speakers for participating over the past year. We really and truly could not have done it without them. A special shout out also to Tyg Williams who put together the great intro and outro music that you hear every week. And thank you once again to our listeners. We well and truly could not have done it without you. It's been so fantastic to have you with us on this journey. Stay tuned for what DU History has to bring next year. And on behalf of the 88th session of DU History, thank you so much for listening. And for the last time, best of luck. Bye.